want to learn how to see and share Jesus from all of Scripture, well, learn with us at the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Welcome to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. In today's episode, Jeff Hay, a pastor of Ballycullen Community Church in Dublin, Ireland, he walks us through the Song of Songs and shows us how this points to Jesus. This is one of the talks that was given at our last conference this spring in Scotland. We hope it will be help to you as you seek to see and share Jesus from all of Scripture. Uh, my name's Jeff. I'm, the, uh, I'm a pastor in Dublin. It's great to be here in Scotland. Been there almost 14 years. Married to Caroline. She's not here for this Song of Songs talk. Uh, I think I drew the short straw to deal with the Song of Songs, and also it'll be the third session in a row uh, to keep us awake. Jason suggested I use some visual aids, but I don't think uh, I'll do that. <laughs> But do have the Song of Songs open, uh, and we'll be glancing at various verses throughout. Uh, I'll probably spend a little bit the first half on the book as a whole, thinking about that, and then suggestions on preaching Christ. Uh, By the way, who here has preached through Song of Songs? Right, speak to Paul afterwards. There we go. (laughs) Interesting. Good, right. Uh, let me pray, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go into it. Father, thank you uh, for your words, and, and help us now to be better and learn better how to teach, teach a song of songs, point to Jesus, we pray. Amen. So not many have preached through the Song of Songs. I wonder why that is. Uh, it is kind of understandable in some ways, isn't it, that we avoid it, because there are difficulties with it. I mean, I mean, should we preach it? What are some of the, the, the reasons why it's avoided? Well, I mean, the language is tricky to understand for people to hear. Uh, it can be embarrassing even just to have it read. I mean, just song of song, verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And that's not the most embarrassing verse, as you know. And yet my 11-year-old daughter, I kind of don't want her to hear this. I don't want her kissing boys for another 20 years. Uh, And then we have kissing here compared to consuming alcohol. So there's trickiness with this book. And yet it's interesting at the same time, let's be honest. Apparently Jewish people were forbidden to read this until age 30. Uh, But it's controversial. As well, it'll raise sensitive issues. It'll uh, lead to maybe questions. Some people won't like to hear this. I had an older woman in my church come to me when I'd finished the series, and she said something like this, praise the Lord, that series is over. (laughs) So, you know, there's lots of difficulties as well on interpretation of this passage. Uh, Things we can't be sure of. Lots of the commentaries differ on what's the interpretation, dream scenes, different things. Who are the main characters? It's complicated. So I'm really encouraging you all to preach this, aren't I? Uh, Give it a go. But it is in the Bible. It's God's words. We believe it speaks to us. And we believe it points to Jesus. 
So just a little bit of history in the book, because the history is interesting. It was a book that was preached on apparently very often in the early years of Christianity, but using the allegorical approach. It was all about Christ and the church. The idea of sex and relationship was, was completely ignored. It never got mentioned. Even the Westminster Assembly declared that, that it's all about Christ and the church. Many even of the early reformers. How did they interpret some of these parts? I mean, even verse 2, apparently, let him kiss me the kisses of the mouth. That's not about kissing. Apparently, it's about reading the Bible. How could you miss that? <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 13, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Jesus is, of course, the sachet of myrrh. I can get that. But the breasts have been interpreted in history as the Old and New Testaments, or Jesus lying between the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. I'm sure we all got that as well. But it has been influenced, obviously, by the culture's attitude to sex. And yet, surely, the, the perspicuity of Scripture means we've got to read this as it's meant to be read. If some random stranger picked up and read the Song of Songs by themselves, I'm sure they'd think, this has got something to do with love and a relationship. And so nowadays, the, the plain reading of the text is, is emphasized perhaps more. The literal approach, it is interpreted as a song about love and marriage, a sexual relationship between a man and a woman. Although this only became popular in the 19th century, only a couple of hundred years. Uh, but because that has been the emphasis, then maybe because of embarrassment, it hasn't been preached on that often in many contexts, as seen here. Well done, Paul. Uh, and yet some people have preached on it, and some famous preachers, uh, uh, a lot more recently as well, and go into great detail, specific detail sexually. And there might be some problems with that also. Uh, before we move on to what is this book about, there are questions about it. First one, who wrote it? People debate. I go with a traditional view, chapter 1, verse 1. This is the Song of Songs of Solomon's. King Solomon penned some 1,005 songs we read in 1 Kings chapter 4. So why not this one? Perhaps the greatest of all songs. But a big question is, who are the lovers? Many have thought it was Solomon himself, the king with the Shulamite woman. Perhaps it was his first marriage. Perhaps it was his best marriage. And yet, there's difficulties with that, isn't there? Especially when we know and we've even heard about from Proverbs, Solomon and his choices, 700 wives, 300 concubines. I don't know how you get your head around that. Gary Miller actually was quoted who, who wrote Saving Eutychus, an Irishman. Uh, about 10 years ago at a conference that I was at, was teaching in Ireland, and he said yes and, and, and convinced me it's written by Solomon, but it's not about Solomon. And he makes a compelling argument from the end of the book. I don't have time to go in it in chapter 8, verses 11 to 14, but basically in verses 11 and 12, it talks about a thousand vineyards. Think 700, 300. But verse 12, this woman, this vineyard's body does not belong to him. So based on that, and, and then even some of the other commentaries we've read, I've read recently, even after that, 
a lot will say that now Solomon is speaking, but he's not speaking about himself. He's writing about the ideal relationship, probably later in life. And that kind of does make sense knowing Solomon. And, and my, you know, I'm not going to stick for it, so I, I could be wrong. But he was the wisest man in the world who made huge mistakes. But maybe this is him writing, uniquely placed to go. See where I messed up? Don't do that. Douglas O'Donnell, I think, has written an excellent commentary on this, on the Preaching the Word series. And he basically says, this is Solomon basically saying, listen, in this matter of marriage, do as I say, not as I did. Do as I say, not as I did. So the song is really about the one that got away, the relationship he could have had or he wished he could have had as he realizes he misses out in real love. And so he writes about this young couple who are passionately and permanently in love. Now, as I say, I'm not an expert, and you could have a different view and, and still celebrate the main themes of marriage, of relationships, uh, even if you have some differences in who is who. So that's some of the questions on, on who are the lovers. Well, but then just to highlight, and we need to remember the genre, this is a song placed in wisdom literature. And so I don't think we need to be tracing a, a chronological narrative exactly. There may be a progression in a wedding, but there's dream scenes, there's difficulties. We don't need to necessarily tie down specifics. It's a song. It's poetry. Maybe meant to be sung. And the songs and poetry are to affect us. They're to not so much inform our head and doctrine, but to spark our emotions, our love. And so we got to remember that. And we don't need to even tie down too much the specific details, as maybe some people try uh, and have done in specific imagery. Perhaps some of the metaphors to sex are deliberately not clear. So we don't need to, are meant to point out what we think this exactly is. It is sexual, but it's not explicit. And maybe that's the way we're meant to handle it. So those are some of the questions. What do I think is the, the main thrust of the book? Well, in, in the first place, it is a song celebrating love between a husband and a wife. It, true romance, and really this is God affirming Love between a husband and a wife, exalting its joys, teaching that sexuality should not be despised or abused. God created sex and marriage as good. Because it's clear there are unmistakable pictures of sexual intimacy between a man and, a, and his wife. I mean, they were pointed out to me as a young lad. Songs of Song 7, verse 78. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruits. There's no escaping. <laughs> I think this is sexual. And it probably has links to Proverbs and Proverbs 5 and wisdom literature. So the song does contain wisdom for lo lovers and how the relationship can grow and, and what goes on. And yet... We believe it needs to be read through the lens of the whole Bible. Then the whole Bible points to Jesus. So this Bible is fundamentally about Jesus. And the Song of Songs ultimately in the, is a picture of 
God and his people, Christ's love for his church. So in the second place, that is going on behind the scenes as well. It's about Christ and the church. The, the Bible, in many ways, is a divine romance. It starts with marriage at the beginning, Adam and Eve, and it ends with marriage at the end. The church is called the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom. God wants us to know that he loves us, and even from this book, with a passionate love. He's the lover of our soul. He wants us to have a close relationship with him, fellowship with him. He's ultimately paid the price for our redemption, <coughs> removed every barrier so we can be united together, united together so that then we can commune with him, have fellowship with him. So I think we're justifying and saying the Song of Songs does, with this overarching theme, point to Christ's love for his people. So we've got to read this with dual lens or, or two sets of glasses. Yes, the love between a husband and a wife, learn lessons from that, but seeing that marital love echo God's love for us and his people. To me, that kind of makes sense of the plain reading of the song, but also then makes sense of reading this in the context of the whole of Scripture. It's a both-and interpretation rather than a either-or. So just looking then, uh, some of this, who's it for, this book. By the way, it is part of wisdom literature, as we said, and marriage and sex and relationships we all need wisdom for. But who's it for? Well, I would say, first of all, and you may, this, you know, it's for singles. It's for singles. There's a repeated refrain throughout the song. You can see it, chapter 2, verse 7, and it's repeated, chapter 3, verse 5. But 2, verse 7, he, he goes, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So single people are particularly mentioned here not to awaken love. In fact, some have suggested, and even interesting following Proverbs, that the primary audience for the Song of Songs is specifically young women, encouraging them to wait for marriage and compliments maybe Proverbs that has more specifically addressing young men. The refrain is basically saying, wait for this. It's, it's worth the wait. As someone put it, it's patience before passion. So it is for singles, but it's also for married, for married people. Once again, there's a, a repeated re refrain throughout the song where it says, my beloved is mine and I am, I am his. We see it in chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 6, verse 3, chapter 7, verse 10, how they belong to one another. I mean, 1 Corinthians 7 talks about how husband and wife and their bodies belong to one another. So this is giving wisdom for marriage, for relationships, on what love looks like. I think we can apply it then to how do we speak to one another in marriage, compliment one another. Now, of course, we know ourselves we have to understand the cultural context. I mean, chapter 1, verse 9, the man's first speech to his lover, he says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Basically, he says, she looks like a big horse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could get that way with that with my wife. 
or actually chapter 7 is one of my favorites. Uh, verse 2, when he, he says, Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. That's not unlike saying your belly button is a great place to hold a beer. <laughs> Picture Homer Simpson, Duff, I don't know. But so cultural context is necessary. And yet there is wisdom again for married couples in our own way, how you speak to one another, encourage one another. Yes, sex and intimacy is celebrated, but it's not all sexual. <laughs> They're speaking, they're showing affection, and we don't necessarily need to go and tie specific details, because it it's provocative, but it's not explicit or raunchy. But those two refrains tell us that this book is for the two groups of people, it's for singles and it's for marrieds. So it's for everyone in church. It's about sex, but it's in the context of the exclusive commitment in marriage and holding that up. By the way, I think that's why we do need this book today. To help marriage, to help people prepare for it, but ultimately as well to show that it's about Jesus. Now, there'll be trickiness in this. Maybe we'll say more or we can have more, but it's God's word. We need to handle it. We might need to be wise in how we do that. But how do we preach Christ then? As I say, this must be uh, read in the context of the whole Bible. Interestingly, there are no direct quotations of the Song of Songs in the New Testament. There's allusions linked to the theme. And I do want to say that I think this overarching theme that we have throughout the whole Bible uh, with Christ and the church uh, Jesus with his bride, that, that has to govern our thinking through all of this. We know Paul's words in Ephesians 5, talking about a husband and wife, and then quoting from Genesis 2, uh, he says, this mystery is profound. And regarding marriage, I'm saying it, it refers to Christ in the church. Christ in the church reveals the mystery of our marriage. Jesus is called our husband, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, he's called our bridegroom, John 3, 29. So the whole storyline of the Bible, God's people with God's bride, Israel with God's bride, he's our husband too, should be this, I don't know, a main theme, this of marriage that illustrates and, and points and links us to Jesus and the gospel. But then, you know, I don't know if you've ever come across that. Sometimes people might go, well, does that mean, you know, every sermon's going to just sound the same? Uh, if all we're doing is Christ in the church all the time, well, I'm going, no, it doesn't have to be. Because the details can are so rich it can point to so many more aspects of Jesus and his relationship with his people. The church. So I'm going to suggest seven different ways, the complete number, but I'm sure there's many more. And just scattered throughout the song, how we can tie, even as you preach and teach specifics and about human marriage, but how we can show this points to Jesus. So firstly, we see the Lord's jealous, committed love for his people. The bride can take a lot of focus here, 
But the husband's the great seeker going after the bride. We see it in chapter 2, verses 8 to 17, the husband seeking. And of course, Jesus, our bridegroom, left his heavenly throne in heavenly Jerusalem, came amongst us, veiled in flesh, to come and to seek a bride. And it's a jealous, committed covenant love. Chapter 8, verse 6, he says this, or, or she says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. A seal expresses this belonging to one another. This is a committed bond. And it gives the reasons for love as strong as death. Jealousy as fierce as a grave. Love is as strong as death. That means once death gets a hold of you, you, you can't resist it. Once true love gets hold of you, it won't let you go. That's this committed love that's, that's here, a, a jealous love. In fact, the only mention of the Lord is in chapter 8, verse uh, 6, the very flame of the Lord. So this is not any little crush. This is a committed jealous love, which of course points to God's jealous, committed love for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So we see the Lord's jealous, committed love for his people. Secondly, another way, we see the mutual love expressed, Christ's love for us and ours in return. Of course, we see the, the husband's love for the bride anticipates Jesus. Ephesians 5, who loved the church and gave himself for her. And yet, likewise, we're to respond to the love of Jesus in this self-giving love, a mutual love. That's why we have that repeated refrain, my beloved is mine and I am his. It's reciprocal. He has freely given himself to us, and now we freely give ourselves back to him, just as Jesus loved us. We love him back. Ephesians 5 verse 2. You're to walk in love how as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The love expressed in this song points to Christ's love for us and ours in return. Now, his love is perfect. Ours fails miserably. But again, that just shows how gracious and loving he is. So you see the mutual love expressed. Third way we see we can tie to Christ is this desire for intimacy. And so there's a desire, there should be a desire for intimacy with Jesus. Just as there's physical intimacy between the woman and the man, and, and there's this desiring for intimacy in chapters 1 and 2 especially, Christ desires intimacy with us. You know, ch chapter 5, verse 2 to 8, and verse 2, we see uh, the knocking. She speaks and says, I slept, but my heart was awake. I sound, my beloved is knocking. And he says, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. So there's this knocking, there's this desiring to be together. Folks, I can echo words of Jesus, Revelation 3.20, speaking to Christians. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, looking for this intimacy with his people, communion, even towards the end of Revelation as well. 22 verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. 
Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So our desires and the desire for intimacy reflect the desire that Jesus wants intimacy with us and us with him. Doesn't Paul say, I desire to depart to be with Christ? Philippians 1. And the song actually concludes with this idea of hope for intimacy. You'd think it might end and they all lived happily ever after, but it's more a case of they're, they're actually separates. And he said, come away. She said, come away with me again, longing to be together. Hurry, make haste. In many ways, there's an unfulfilled longing. There's an ending in this song, still wanting more. Why? Because ultimately our desires are only met in Christ. So we can point to the desire for intimacy with Jesus. Fourthly, we can go to Christ through the man, the husband, Jesus, who is our shepherd king. Jesus is our shepherd king. There's a shepherd king theme here because who's this man? Well, he is referred to as a king, even if you don't think he's King Solomon. He's referred to as a king in verse 4 and of chapter 1 and in various places, verse 12. You've got the wedding then scene in chapter 3, the king. And yet in chapter 1, verse 7, what does it say? Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock. So it seems to be a shepherd, a lowly shepherd. It's almost as if there's two men involved with this girl, a lowly shepherd or a majestic king. Folks, it doesn't take rocket science to see who that is fulfilled in. Jesus, our shepherd king, who laid down his life for us as sheep, John chapter 10. But he's going to return as a powerful conquering king. First time he comes as a shepherd to give his life, he's now the king sitting on the throne. So Jesus is our shepherd king. Fifthly, I think we can trace the Garden of Eden theme throughout the Bible. This marriage is actually taking us back to the Garden of Eden. Before the fall, there's lots of imagery of, of garden, of, of fruit here. It's a multi-sensory book. There's echoes of Eden filled with spices and fruits. In fact, James Hamilton says the closest we get to being back to the garden in Eden in the rest of the Bible is in the poetry of the Song of Songs. So verses such as, I don't know, chapter 2, verse 3, as an apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. All this fruitfulness, echoing of Eden. And you can trace the storyline of the Bible, heading ultimately to the garden city, the new Jerusalem. Jesus, who through his death, gives us access to the tree of life. Because of him, we can dwell under the shadow of the Almighty. He offers us true fruit. In fact, chapter 7, verse 10, that beloved phrase is slightly changed. He says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Folks, that's a hint of the reversal of the fall, the curse, the wrong use of the desire. So you can trace the Garden of Eden theme and link it to Revelation. Sixthly, 
the marriage supper of the Lamb, or the final wedding day. This song looks forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the shepherd king who one day will come for his bride and bring him to, or her, to the great wedding feast. My beloved is mine and I am his. You've got this coming together, dwelling together. Like Revelation 21, where the dwelling of God is now with man. And so you have a royal wedding in chapter 3. And you have Jesus, who is coming to prepare a place for us. Our bridegroom will return in great procession. Some of the scene you have in chapter 3 to take his bride to church home. Revelation 19, verse 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is our wedding feast. This is what this is pointing to, folks. This is the unfulfilled longing when King Jesus will return to sort out all the mess, to remove all the tears. This song points to this wedding feast at the end that will lead to an eternal honeymoon. Revelation 21 and 22. Douglas O'Donnell links the book of Song of Songs and the ending saying it can be linked to the end of the book of Revelation. We're in the last chapter and verses of our Bible, the book of Revelation, it says, surely I'm coming soon. And we cry, and the bride cries, come Lord Jesus. That's how the book of Song of Songs ends. Make haste, come. This is where it's all headed. We're waiting for our shepherd bridegroom king to come and get us and bring us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Finally, I think we can get to Christ through, really it's been mentioned already, how, where we all feel Christ has succeeded. Where we all feel Christ has succeeded, we can get to Christ through that because if you're teaching this and teaching on marriage and sex and singleness, it's pretty clear we'll realize we're all sexual sinners. It's pretty clear people will be feeling guilty. That's why the gospel of God's grace needs to be held high from this book, where we feel, and we do, Christ has succeeded and ultimately declared his love for us on the cross with his arms outstretched. Brian Chappell, in his Christ-centered preaching, refers to this approach of the fallen condition focus principle, where we ask, what is there in this text that shows man's need that requires the grace of God, a savior for a resolution? Folks, if you speak on sex and marriage and the need to wait, it will show us our need for God's grace. It will mean we need to point to Jesus probably in every sermon in this way and how he is the bridegroom like he was to the Samaritan woman and offers complete forgiveness and salvation. We feel Christ succeeds and in fact counts us righteous in him. There's a lovely verse, chapter four, verse seven where the man says, you're altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. This woman was flawed. She was sunburned at the start. She wasn't perfect. We know that. But for us 
who are married to Christ, in Christ. This is how God sees us, through faith in him, even though we are deeply flawed. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, and so it can be said of us, there's no flaw in you, because you're clothed in Christ. Because of the work of Christ, our bridegroom sees us as perfect, beautiful. I'm sure there's many other ways that we can point to Christ. Those are just a few suggestions for how to preach Christ from this book. So can I encourage you to give it a go? It's countercultural. You'll have to understand your own context. I mean, I probably wouldn't do this Bible study with my mother and father-in-law. <laughs> I don't know how you'd get on in a youth group. But, and actually I myself wouldn't necessarily do a long series. Uh, maybe in your context, it'd like that. You need to understand who you're speaking to. Secondly, you'll need to enable people to relax. It's okay to read it with a smile. I asked a couple, of, a couple would they do the reading? There's people didn't even want to do the Bible reading in church. I wanted to pair them up, the husband, and they wouldn't do it. So bear that in my mind. But it's okay to have a laugh and smile. And yet, be aware, this is a sensitive area. This book can raise difficult issues, pastoral issues. Many people will have difficulties, history in this area. People will feel messed up, inadequate. We have to be careful. We have to remember that. That's why we need to point them to Jesus, isn't it? And it is relevant, though, isn't it? He's warning us against the idol of sex as well. So we need to teach about sex in some way or else this book, because everywhere else is screaming around us a different message. You need to have sex and wherever you are and explore and experiment. But this book is teaching us the best of human love and where it is to be experienced and in marriage, and yet it is also teaching us that the best human marriage is only a pale reflection of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. So can I encourage you to preach it, but to point to Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. I'll read some words from Jonathan Edwards and pray. The church shall be brought to the full enjoyment of her bridegroom, having all tears wiped away from her eyes, and there shall be no distance or absence. She shall then be brought to the entertainments of an eternal wedding feast, and to dwell forever with her bridegroom, yet to dwell eternally in his embraces. Then Christ will give her his loves, and she shall drink her fill. Yeah, she shall swim in the ocean of his love. Father, we praise you for your amazing love for us in Christ. Thank you that we are united to you through faith. May our communion, our love for you grow, even as we once again behold Jesus, our wonderful Savior. 
Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.